Good morning again. Uh, if it's no offense to anyone, I'm going to sit down and preach this morning. Um, it's what happens sometimes when you're 42 and you hang out with 20-year-olds and your body has to remind you that you're not 20. And so I have a broken bone in my foot that is healing thanks to some good work by some good doctors here in town. But I'm going to sit, um, so I hope that's okay with everybody. If you've got a Bible nearby, this feels a little weird, I've got to be honest with you. Um, if you've got a Bible nearby, let me encourage you to open it to the book of 1 Samuel. If you're new to the Bible, it's the book that is near the beginning of the, of the Old Testament, near the beginning of the first part of the Bible. It's going to say 1 Samuel. You can, you're free, free to call it that. Don't feel like you have to call it 1 Samuel like those of us who've called it that our whole lives. We're going to con- consider this morning 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 20 heard uh, one of my favorite TV writers and producers recently uh, in a lecture uh, online make this somewhat profound statement. He said that one of the great new plagues of the 21st century is people who believe they have the answer in a paragraph, who believe they can conjure an explanation for how we should do governance and how we should array our society that will apply to every single problem and in every single circumstance in which we find ourselves. Now, your mind may be running to the 140-some-odd characters of Twitter and think, of course he's right. We try to summarize argumentation in way too short of a context. But let's be honest. Long before there was even a thing called social media, we thought everything had a simple answer. We ignore the complexities of the world in which we live, and we want to reduce everything to, I'm right and you're wrong, and let me tell you in two sentences, and if you don't believe me, then we can't be friends, and we're going to not like each other. We struggle with nuance. We struggle in our discourse. Now, the reality is, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that there are parts of Scripture that are incredibly brief, incredibly succinct, and I'll be, and I'll make, I want to make sure I say this, we need them to be brief and succinct. The fact that there are Ten Commandments and that we call them Ten Commandments is really helpful for us because we like to be dodgy. We like to say, well, maybe, maybe not, or it depends. But the reality is we need God to speak into our lives and say adultery is wrong, murder is wrong, coveting is wrong. Many of us are glad it says honor your father and mother there in the Bible, as Pastor Brian reminded us last week. We need those direct, very clear commands, and much of the scriptures do that for us. But in God's wisdom and in his faithfulness and in his kindness to us, that's not all he gives us. He gives us more than commands because what he does is he acknowledges that the commands that we so desperately need and that we're so grateful for are not enough because day-to-day life is more complex than that. And so we we bring to the table, we bring to God honest questions about, I, I know that it says this, but how does that apply in my situation? And so also in Scripture we find God speaking through events. God speaking through events of history. God speaking through flesh and blood people to say this is what it looks like to apply this commandment in your life. In the complexities and difficulties of what it means to be human in the world that he has made, we also need stories. And God in his providential wisdom and kindness gives us stories such as what we consider this morning. 1 Samuel takes place in a time in the history of God's people in which they're wrestling to figure out what it means for them to be a united people. The last several hundred years of life for the people of God has been a time of discord, 
a time of competition among one another, a time of confusion, and a time of chaos. And so we, when we get to 1 Samuel, we hear God beginning to prepare his people to give them a king that would rule over them and unite the people of God. Let's now consider as I read 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Follow along if you can. Hear now the word of God. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when, when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to, 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 to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After, she had eaten, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was, de- he was, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved. And her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray now together. Father in heaven, some of us bring to you what we think are complex questions that may in fact have very simple answers. Other of us bring to you what we perceive to be very simple situations in our lives, not yet knowing the complexity of what's behind them. Father, we bring to you things we're excited about. We bring to you things we struggle with and everything in between. And we ask that you would meet us this morning through your word. We pray, Father, that you would send out your light and your truth, that they would lead us, that they would guide us and take us to you, to the place where you are, that we might walk away changed. 
in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. I'm convinced that one of the draw of sports in this country, whether it's the beginning of the NBA and NHL seasons in recent days, or it's World Series season, right, Pastor Brian? Coming upon us now, whatever it may be, is we love the anticipation of the unknown athlete who's going to come out of obscurity and win the game or at least be the difference maker. If you're a sports fan in the last decade or so of life, you know names like Dexter Jackson and David Tyree and David Fries, whatever your opinions on them may be. We love the, the no-name young athlete who came out of nowhere, who is a walk-on in his college program, who wasn't scholarship because nobody could find him. And he's the, yet he becomes the difference maker in the biggest stage in our culture. We love hearing about and watching the, the veteran athlete that we thought was washed up, that was done with that last burst of hope and energy and win the game. We love these stories because that's what sports is for us. It's a form of story. We love the stories of people rising out of nowhere and in effect changing our world if nothing else, sometimes changing our dispositions. We love the story that starts in obscurity and goes somewhere and affects the course of time. It's where we find ourselves in the beginning of 1 Samuel. As I said, 1 Samuel is the account of God setting on the throne in charge of the people of Israel, King David, the one who would be the hero king for the people of Israel even to this day. The greatest king they ever knew. But it begins with a man and his two wives that we hear very little else about in the rest of Scripture. We love stories like these, and they show up all over the Bible. As we look at these first 20 verses of 1 Samuel, though, I actually want to skip ahead. We're going to come back to the early stages of this story. But I want to jump ahead to what seems to be the thematic, the thematic center of what happens in this first chapter. And it is that we meet this woman, a woman named Hannah, in distress, weeping, praying, mumbling, looking so disturbed that the, the high priest, the man who should understand what's happening, only sees a woman who's probably had too much to drink. Now, in our world, not to stereotype a college town, but let's be honest, this may not be that strange of a thing in our context, especially if you've been around here in the spring and experienced fake Patty's Day. You know what it is to see people wrestle with their demons in this way. But here, Eli jumps to a conclusion. But as we hear Hannah talk, and as we hear the, 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 the narrator describe where, where we find her, notice what her circumstances are. Three times it's mentioned that she's weeping, twice that she's not eating, she's so distraught that she can't even participate in the meal that's connected with why they're at this temple to begin with, to eat part of the sacrifice as an act of worship. In verse 10, she tells us that she, we read that she is deeply distressed. More literally, she is bitter of soul. That word bitterness shows up earlier in the story of God's people when we meet a woman named Naomi who's lost her husband and her two sons to death. Hannah feels a grief that distresses her. She speaks in verse 11 of her affliction, of her suffering, of her need. She says, I'm troubled in spirit. I'm living a hard, difficult life. 
In verse 16, she says, don't consider me a worthless woman. And we can't help but wonder if that's how she sees other people seeing her as worthless, as of no use. She speaks of her great anxiety and her vexation. And and when we put all these words in a blender and consider them all at once, what we read is not simple sadness. It's not a simple case of, I wish things were different. But we hear these words that put them together. We hear this combination of bitterness and anger and a sense of injustice and wrongdoing, but deep, deep sadness. It's one thing to suffer we might say. It's another thing for suffering to cloud our vision, to disrupt our faith, and to mess with our emotions. If Hannah was here this morning, visibly and audibly in distress, some of us, and I put myself in this category, might initially react by being uncomfortable. And yet, she's at the center of our story. She's at the very center of what unfolds. And and the beauty of what she does in beginning in verse 9 is her response is to begin to pray as if that, that is her last resort. But what's happening as she prays is her faith is responding to her circumstances. Five or so hundred years ago, John Calvin wrote that the prayer is the chief exercise of faith. And to hear Hannah pray, what I want us to focus on this morning is the faith that underlines not only her circumstances, but more importantly, underlies her prayer. And her prayer is bold. She asks for God to bring about a change in her circumstances. Up until this point, this is a woman who has not been able to bear children. Scholars tell us, in fact, that the way the story unfolds and the way it's told to us in these early verses, chances are she was Elkanah's first wife. And as was customary in the cultures of the day, if your first wife could not bear you children, it was not uncommon to find another means to bear children. And and that means worked. And so we meet Hannah praying that God would do something. Prayer is, is nothing more simple than that. Prayer is asking God to do something. It's asking God to act in this world. And that is the place that her faith takes her to as we read in these verses. So what is it about her faith that drives her to such a place? For us this morning, how does faith respond to our circumstances? Where does faith lead us? To begin with, I want to consider this thought, and it's simply this, that faith leads us to look at the world as it is. You see, faith is not an escape. It's not hiding our heads in the sand. It is not pretending that everything is okay. It's the very opposite of that. Faith looks at your circumstances and says, let's see what is there, let's see what is before us. Hannah certainly knows the difficulty of her, we know the difficulty of Hannah's circumstances, don't we? Her life initially sounds good. From those first few verses, we we can understand that her husband seems to be a man of standing because we're told about who his family is. He's a man of means because he can support a large family. He's a man faithful in his religion. He takes his family to sacrifice on a yearly basis. And we're even told that he has great affection for Hannah. We're told that he loves her. That he goes out of his way to dote on her. To give her the double portion as opposed to the others. But as we've said, her circumstances make this difficult. Make all of this difficult. Part of her circumstances is the simple reality that she cannot bear children, and she's grieved by this. 
Some of you know the loneliness and the pain that exists when you so long for children and you cannot bear them. Genesis 3 tells us to expect difficulty in our circumstances. Because we're descendants of our first parents, those who disobeyed God and brought sin into this world, as Scripture tells us. And it affects every part of our lives, that all parts of our existence, that there's nowhere we go that is not affected by the sinfulness of this world, even in our daily circumstances. Elkanah loves her and wants to encourage her. But as we hear him say, even at the end of verse 8, Am I not more to you than ten sons? Most of us would probably say, of course you're not more to her than ten sons. You love her, yes, but you are not enough, Elkanah. You are not intended to be enough for her. You are not enough. He's trying, and yet the difficulty of her circumstances win. But then we're told about her rival. It's not only her difficult circumstances, it's the difficult people that are in her, li- in her life. Look at verses 4 and 5. He would give the portions to Penina and to, her, to his wife and all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. But then look at verse 6. The other wife is described as her rival, provoking her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Penina knows that she's the second choice. And even though she's experienced motherhood and is thankful for that, she bears this weight of, he loves her more than me. And every time we go to worship, I'm reminded that he loves her more than me. And so she begins to fight back. And we're told multiple times that she provokes Hannah. She provokes her in such a painful, difficult way. I want you to know, the Bible is not indifferent to the difficult circumstances of your life or even the difficult people in your life. Even those situations that are marred and affected by the sin of others upon you, the Bible is not indifferent to any of that. And faith leads us to a place where it shines the light on those very difficult places so that we don't have to hide, so we don't have to pretend that everything is okay. Faith leads us to a place of seeing the world as it is. Because we need, we need the light to shine in those difficult places. Every time something breaks in our home, I'm reminded of this reality. Especially when it happens under the sink. Because when it comes to plumbing, I'm not, it's not my strong suit. But when it comes to plumbing and especially trying to fix something under the seat, you find the sink, you find yourself having to reach into places that you simply cannot see by getting on your knees. And so you have to crawl under there and you have to figure out what's going to fall on my face as I crawl under there. But you have to be able to see the problem in order to to address the problem. Beloved, that's where faith leads us. I wonder how faith appears in our life together as a church. Do you feel a pressure, which you shouldn't feel, but do you feel a pressure to show up on Sundays pretending that everything is okay? That the world isn't so bad, that your life isn't so bad, that you've got everything to put together? Collectively, do we gather to hide from the world around us and pretend that a world isn't falling apart as it seems? Can we face, can we be honest with one another about the difficulty of the things that we're going through? About the coworker that to no end will not leave you alone? About the professor that's driving you batty? And is discounting everything that you try to say. About the employee who's stealing from you or stealing from the company. 
and you can't seem to figure out how to address it? Are we willing to look at the world as it is, even in our own hearts? And what does the world around us see as we do that? What does it see of our faith? Now, before we go on, I want to, as, as much, very much as an aside, I want to say something important, and that, it is, that I think is important, and it is this. As we gather and live this way and see the world as it is, I want to encourage you to consider the circumstances of others. It can be difficult, and I say this not specifically from my experience here, but I was a, in a local church in the Kansas City area for almost 10 years, and a lot of these thoughts flow out of my experiences there over time. It can be difficult to show up at a gathering of people like this and not fit the cultural norm, whatever that may be. It can be difficult to show up, even in the Christian world, to a place like this and not to be dating someone. It can be difficult to show up and not to be married, not to be having kids or not to be having a lot of kids. Whatever the cultural norm that you bring to the table is, it can be hard and you not even know it. In any of these, in any of these situations, it can, it's easy to feel less than human. Whether or not someone says anything to you or not, but I want you to know that. And as we see Hannah suffer, I want you to know that people around you may well be suffering. Now, the last thing on earth that most of us in those situations need is to be ignored. And so in some ways, I'm inviting you actually to step towards the awkwardness of trying to figure out the carefulness of those situations. But I want you to know, sometimes the first question for a woman sitting by herself in church that you don't know is not who's your husband or where are your kids. Sometimes, and this has actually happened to me in a very stark kind of way once that I'll never forget, sometimes even a question like, what do you do for a living, has baggage to it. And I'm not saying don't ask that question. What I'm saying is if you get a strange response, sometimes that's a painful thing for people. Even that is painful for people. It can be difficult in some of these scenarios because people don't, aren't interested in being married at this point in their lives or aren't interested in dating in their lives. Sometimes it's because they try and it hasn't happened. Infertility is rampant in the world we live in and it seems to me from my experience that we, we rarely talk about that, but it's painful and it's lonely. Let's work together to not make contentment in God's provision in the present difficult for anybody even while acknowledging that some of us need to be kicked out of our contentment. Let's work together not to make it more difficult to learn contentment that God is teaching us. Faith leads us to this place of looking at the world as it is. But faith also leads us to look for God where he says that we will find him. And by this, I want to make this, I tell you this, that faith is not some vague thing. It is not optimism. It is not hoping that tomorrow is going to be better than today. Because in Hannah's situation, she's never promised that. She doesn't know that. But what we see in how this passage works out is faith looking for God where, she, where he says we will find him. We, we read in verse 3 that this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year to, from his city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant, where God had said, this is where my presence is. This is the place where God said he would meet with his people. He goes to worship. For, for us, 
we look for God together in worship. Not because this is a magical building or a magical place or any of us are magical for that matter, but because, because God says, I will meet with you. He calls us into his presence, as we were reminded each week at the beginning of our service. He calls us to this place and invites us and says, I will meet with you there in ways that may be different from the rest of your experience as you hear God's word, as you sing, and as we pray. As we celebrate the sacraments in particular, which are not sacrifices, but point to Jesus' sacrifice for his people. Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood for you. But also, as they gather at the house of the Lord, which is here referred to as a temple, which at this point in the history of God's people was probably still more of a tent than a solid structure, we hear God, we hear the people going to this place. We, we see Hannah not running away from the temple, but there in this house saying, crying out, saying, I'm in distress, I'm troubled in spirit, doing what she can to cry out to the Lord. Don't think of this place as, as, as in... God's, God is saying, you have to go to this building because this building is magic, but it's rather God saying to his people, I am with you, and I'm giving you this specific place to tell you that I am with you, and that I've not left you, and that I will always be with you. Now, as the story of Scripture unfolds, what we find is that when Jesus comes onto earth in John chapter 2, we, we hear him say, destroy this temple, and in three days raise it up. And Jesus is at the temple when he says that, and the people freak out. You're going to destroy the temple that took 46 years to build? And John adds this comment, the next verse, and says Jesus was speaking about the temple that is his body. You see, God gave his people the tabernacle. He gave his people the temple. But Jesus came to that temple to say, I am the temple. And then after he was risen from the dead, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, that God's people, that you, to us as God's people, you are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in you. God's temple is holy and you are this temple. As Hannah runs to the temple to pray, the message for you and me is that collectively we are the temple of God because God is present with us by his spirit. Faith leads us to look for God where he says we will find him. We find him with each other, beloved. We find him with the gathering of other Christians. But the other most obvious component in this is what we, what's referenced in verse 10 and verse 12. And that is that Hannah is bold enough to pray even in the midst of her weakness. The Bible tells us that God hears his people when they pray. Early in the Psalms, in Psalm chapter 3, the writer writes, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me. And that echoes throughout the rest of the Psalms. I cried aloud, I cried aloud, and he heard me and he answered me. Jesus himself says that everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened in Luke 11. Jesus is saying, I will meet with you as you pray to me. I will hear you. The beauty of this passage is when Hannah is given a child and names him Samuel, his name means the Lord heard me. The Lord hears. It's who he is. The promise of all of these things is that God will meet with us in places where he says he will meet with us, in ways that he says he will meet with us, and faith looks to those places. This is going to break down really quickly, this illustration will, but it, but it helps me at least get in the right frame of mind. My middle son Jack and I love to go fishing. We don't get to do it as much as we want, but we love to go fishing. And so we head to the creeks and the lakes in the area. We've had a little bit of luck and a whole lot of not luck when it comes to fishing. 
But when we decide to go fishing, we know what we've got to do. We've got to grab our gear, we've got to grab some bait, we've got to grab our fishing poles, and we have to go to the place where we're pretty sure there are fish. And even though we haven't had any luck at pot two, we know that there's fish in the lake. There has to be fish. It's a big lake. There has to be fish there. There are other people there fishing as well. You get ready to go fish, and you go fish to places where you know that there are going to be fish. But for us to go fishing in our bathtub or to find a neighborhood swimming pool is a ludicrous idea. Because barring some of the, something very strange or something very deliberate, we're not going to catch fish there at all. There's not even a hope of catching fish because it's a, it's a swimming pool and it's a bathtub and fish don't live in swimming pools and bathtubs unless something is really wrong. You get ready to fish and you go fish where you know there are going to be fish to be caught. Again, I, I know that it breaks down. But faith leads us to that place where we know God will be. Where does your faith take you as you seek God? There's a temptation for us to say, I meet God in nature, and so I'm going to go spend my, my, my Sunday mornings or spend my weekends out on the Kanza. Does God speak through his creation? Yes. Scripture tells us that. But Scripture also makes it clear that God speaks most clearly through his word and through his people as we gather for worship. Scripture encourages us not to neglect meeting together as long as the day is here. Pursue the opportunities that are before you in worship, in gathering during the week, in seeking God through His Word, in hearing Him speak through His Word, even in pausing to pray, even as you're running from one thing to the other. Because God says, I will meet with you in those ways. Where does your faith lead you as you seek God? Is it away from him or is it to the places that he says you will, you will find him? As the passage comes to a close, we hear faith leading us one more place. And it is very simply this, to go on your way. If you look at verse 17, as Eli realizes the mistake that he has made, you can almost imagine his countenance changing immediately, probably with a hint of embarrassment as Hannah answers him. But in verse 17, He simply says to her, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. He says, go in peace. And the beauty of Eli's words here is that he doesn't promise her anything. He doesn't say, surely the Lord will give you a child as he gave to Sarah and others that we know of in Scripture. He doesn't promise her what he has no right to promise her. But his words in verse 17 really echo her very prayers. He prays with her in other words. And sends her on her way. And at the end of verse 18, says that the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. But something else happens in verses 19 and 20. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. You see, what's unfolding here is they don't stay at the temple. They don't feel a guilt to say, for us to be really, really great Israelites, we've got to live at the temple and do everything they say and pretend that that's what we're called to do. It doesn't say that. Eli says, okay, go on home. Go on home. You've done what you can do. And in verses 19 and 20, what unfolds is days and months of life. 
When it says that Elkanah knew his wife, it's talking about biology plain and simple. And days and weeks and months passed, and she gave birth to a son. Now what's fascinating is it tells us that the Lord remembered her as well. So the Lord had to act for this to happen. And yet the way that the Lord chose to act was by them living out the dailiness of their lives. Elkanah caring for both of his wives and all of his children. Earning a living, doing what he needed to do. Because everything that they had needed to be done, that they could have done, had been done. And it was over. And it was on to the next thing. Years ago, I read a biography of Harry Truman, and on June 24th, 1950, he was actually in Independence, Independence, Missouri, visiting his his home, where he was born and raised. He was visiting family for the weekend, and he received a phone call that he'd been dreading. If you know what was happening in June of 1950, you know that the phone call that he got was to tell him that North Korea had crossed the 38th parallel into South Korea, and that war was imminent. And Truman was bearing the weight of the world because they were not only scared about that happening, but they were concerned because they knew that that they could be on the brink of World War III because China and Russia were soon to get involved as well. He felt, the, the president of this country felt the weight of the world. And when Dean Acheson, his secretary of state, called, President Truman's response was, I'm on my way to Washington now. But interestingly, Acheson said no. Atchison had already contacted the Senate Secretary General of the UN to call a meeting of the Security Council. He had already contacted, he had already been in touch with the ambassador to Korea and others that he needed to be in touch with. And his words to President Truman were simply this. Don't, let's not alarm the country. Stay put. And then he said this, everything is being done that can be. If you can sleep, take it easy. Everything that can, that is being done, everything is being done that can be. In other words, saying to his boss, the President of the United States, there's nothing for you to do right now, so try to get some sleep. Of course, the next day, Truman was on the first plane that he could muster. But what wise counsel for you and me? Everything is, that everything is being done that can be done, if you can sleep. Do you know that there are times when the holiest, most obedient, most faithful thing to God that you can do is change a diaper? That the the best thing that you can do in any given moment may be to go mow the lawn. It may be to go to sleep. It may be to take a nap. It may be to put the books away. It may be to walk away from the computer screen. It may even be to walk away from doing your taxes or whatever it is that you've got in front of you. The beauty of, of faith is that faith doesn't say you have to pile on the guilt that with every moment of free time you must be reading your Bible, you must be praying, you must be talking about Jesus. The beauty of faith is that faith sets us free to live our lives the way God has called us to live our lives as human beings that have very real needs that need to be attended to. Yes, He calls us to gather. Yes, He calls us to read His Word. Yes, He calls us to pray and promises to meet us there. And yet the reality is there are so many other parts of our lives that we see as less than, but the testimony of Scripture over and over again is that it's all God's. So do what He calls you to do where He calls you to do them. Faith says, go on your way. At the end of this passage, what I want you to see is very simply this. Faith's strength lies not in its perfection. (laughs) Hannah 
is an imperfect person. Her faith, we would say, seems deep and strong, and yet the reality of her circumstances is what we saw. The reality of her situation is that at best her faith is clouded by anger, by bitterness, by frustration, by sorrow, and by grief. And yet, even in that moment, she calls out to God, and he hears her, and he answers her. The strength of faith lies not in our perfection. There's a novel that I read some years ago by a man named Graham Greene called The Power and the Glory. From what I understand, he grew up in a Christian, with a Christian faith, but wrestled with it his adult life. And most of his novels that he's written actually play out him wrestling with that. And The Power and the Glory takes place in Mexico, I believe in the 1800s, at a, at a time where at least in a portion of the country of Mexico, Catholicism was outlawed. And so literally the priests were hunted down. And it tells the story of one of these priests who's we never hear his name, but he's called, in a funny sort of way, the whiskey priest. Early in the novel, we read this about him. He knew that he was a bad priest. There's a name for people like him, Graham writes, a whiskey priest. Every failure dropped out of sight and out of mind. Somewhere they accumulated in secret. The rubble of his failures. One day they would choke up, he supposed, altogether the source of grace. You see, he knew his sin. He knew of his drunkenness. He knew of his fornication. He knew of his unfaithfulness. He knew of his struggle with faith. And he knew that one day it would catch up with him, this whiskey priest. And so he diligently pursued his, what he thought was his calling to continue to serve people in a funny sort of heroic kind of way, even in the midst of his weakness. But he did so bearing this weight of guilt that overwhelmed him throughout the novel. Near the end, we read this, that he felt only an immense disappointment near the end of his life because he had to go to God empty-handed with nothing done at all. It seemed to him at that moment that it would have been easy to have been a saint. It would have, been only, he would have, only, need, it would have only needed a little self-restraint and a little courage. He felt like someone who had missed, who has missed happiness by seconds at an appointed place. He knew now that at the end there was only one thing that could to be counted, to be a saint. The struggle of his life was that he lived with this immeasurable sense of guilt and failure. And he felt this immense disappointment because he knew he had nothing to bring before God. Because he was coming to God empty-handed. But even in that moment, he realized, he realized that even the little self-restraint and a little courage that he needed to muster up in his mind to be fully a saint, he still couldn't muster that up even. I wonder if you feel like the whiskey priest. If you look at your life and what you see most clearly is failure. And you feel like one day those failures are going to pile on and pile on and eventually choke out God's grace from your life. I wonder if you know what it is to feel so disillusioned and that life is so chaotic to not be able to see past the front of your nose. The beauty of faith as someone has said in the last century, the beauty of faith is that it is simply our empty hands reaching up to God. Not to give, but to receive. The strength of faith lies not in its perfection. And because of that, because the gospel is true, we can look at the world as it is. Because it's what Jesus did. It's what God did by sending His Son. Not by shouting to us from the heavens, come up here, 
come up here, run away, run away, run away. But by sending his son down to this place that is real, full of real people and real situations. Faith calls us to look for God where he says to find him because God says, I am with you. And we know that God says, I'm with you because he is with us through his spirit and because he sent his son to be here. And because of all of that, he can say to us, go on your way. Do the next thing. He doesn't promise that everything will be perfect or that we'll always work out the way we want. But he is with us and he is near. Beloved, this is the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know the emptiness of our hands this morning. You know, of course, the things that we think that we can put in them to satisfy you, to make you pleased with us in a way that you would not be pleased with us in, other, in any other way. But Father, when it comes down to it, you know the reality of having empty hands that we hold up to you. Father, would you meet us in this place, in this place of need, that we might find hope, that we might find joy, and that we might find rest. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen.